Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 173, Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And this is the seventh week of the Omer, that period between Passover and Shavuot, in which we are imagining that one moves from the liberation of the way things always have been to a future, metaphorically, the Mount Sinai moment, where we can put the pieces together in a new way, and at least for this year, move forward into the year with a Judaism that fits us where we are today. And for the seventh week of the Omer, we could think of no better way to cap it off than to interview our guest today, Andrew Raymer. He has recently come out with a book called Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud, which imagines a time 80 years from now where a new Talmud is written based on the needs of the world 80 years from now. We're going to get a lot more into the details of what is in that Talmud in a few moments. Andrew Raymer is an author and a Magid, a sacred storyteller who has actually been ordained as such by both rabbis and a Mennonite pastor, making him, to the best of his knowledge, the first interfaith Magid the world has ever seen. He is the author of a number of published books, including Queering the Text, Biblical, Medieval, and Modern Jewish Stories, Torah Told Different, Stories for a Pan-Poly Post-Denominational Era, and Deathless, the complete, uncensored, heartbreaking, and amazing autobiography of Serach Bat Asher, the oldest woman in the world. Andrew Raymer's imagination and boldness is exactly what we think we need to cap off a series like this and to help move our work on Judaism Unbound forward into the realm of productivity, into the realm of creating something out of all the pieces that we've been exploring. So without further ado, Andrew Raymer, thank you so much for joining us on Judaism Unbound. We are so thrilled to have you and to discuss this very wonderful work that you have put together, Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud. Thank you. I am so utterly thrilled to be here. So as I just said, we've been in this period of the Omer that's about to wrap up with Shavuot, and thematically we've been thinking about the idea of the giving of the Torah and what it would be like to create a Torah or a Talmud for our time. And then we found in your book that you've already done that in Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud. So we were wondering if we could start with you describing a bit about the world in which that book takes place and what the developments have been in that world that led to the creation and then the discovery of these fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud. Imagine that it's 80 years from now and the world is radically different. No one can go outside without wearing a breathing mask or a complete body suit because the air is so incredibly toxic. Almost all coastal cities are underwater. There is peace in the Middle East after a 25-year drought and temperatures so scorching that the entire Middle East has had to be evacuated. We're living in a dire situation, and a rabbi in Brooklyn, looking at the fact that a disease like AIDS, but way worse, has killed off one-sixth of all of humanity, this rabbi decides that we Jews, we surviving Jews in our scattered communities, need a new Talmud, 
a new guide for our teachings, our stories. And she envisions this as audio, video, art, every possible format, assembles over the course of five years a group of rabbis and Jewish scholars, teachers from every part of the world who can make it to Brooklyn to craft this text, but it's never finished. And 80 years after that, one surviving laptop is found that has these fragments in it. And the editors of the fragments are working out of Hebrew University, which has been relocated to Antarctica City. And they've assembled the text that I put together. And so can you talk about why it is that they felt this need to, to create a new Talmud? If we look back at the history of the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, they're created in the centuries after the destruction of the Second Temple, after our ancestors have gone into exile in all kinds of directions, and they're looking at how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we use the stories that we have and tell them in new ways? This is a conversation that you've had with B'nai Lapi about how she sees these crashes. And I'm moving, in a way, what I learned from her into the future. How are we going to survive the threat to all of life on planet Earth is my extrapolation of the destruction of the Second Temple. And there's a wide variety of material in this book, a wide variety of material in this Talmud, like there is in the other Talmuds. There's material that's more stories. There's material that's more about rituals. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit in particular about one ritual that you describe in this book, because I think it'll help our listeners understand what you see these folks responding to in the very different world in which they inhabit. And you write about a new way to do Havdalah, the ceremony that separates Shabbat from the rest of the week in this new world. Could you describe a little bit about how you saw the difference between the Havdalah that we know and the Havdalah that they feel compelled to design in this Brooklyn Talmud? The inspiration for this happened many years ago when I was at a gay men's spirituality conference and we were a group of people from every background, faith tradition, Native American, Catholic, Jewish. And Jay Michelson led us in a very traditional Havdalah. And being the feisty, ornery, cranky person that I am, I created a very different one in which we passed around a plastic bottle and everyone spit into it. And my text was, there is no separation between anything anymore, and there can't be. There's no separation between the water and the sky, the water and the ocean, the water and our body. It's all one. We pass around an empty cup. It's not filled with anything. And this saliva that we're putting in this cup, we give back to the earth. It's actually never separate from it. So that's my thinking. And the thinking is really an invitation for the end of any Shabbat. It's an invitation for counting the Omer. It's an invitation for any of the points in our changing Jewish lives, which is how do we take what we're given that may not work for us? And how do we honor what we were given 
and yet utterly make it relevant for the moment. How do you retell the story? I have a funny question that's both about this book and some of your other books. So we can broaden this to, to all of your works. But um, I want to talk about surprises. Um, I, and I, I'll explain what I mean. I, I think that a lot of Jews, Jewish communal leaders, rabbis, um, run-of-the-mill Jews that go to services, run-of-the-mill Jews who don't go to services, all of these people, I think there's a sense that what we find in Jewish spaces or Jewish tradition or Jewish culture or whatever is a sense of the familiar, a sense of something that will that we can do over and over on a weekly basis or on a yearly basis for holidays or whatever, and and feel a sense of the familiar and that it's ancient and that it's something that we can connect to on that on that sort of rhythmic patterned level. But what I think you bring to the table is actually in a certain sense, maybe the opposite of that. And what I mean is and, and it's not that you're against the familiar. It's that your books constantly are looking to surprise the reader. They are not looking to be familiar. They're looking to put Hebrew University in an Antarctica city because you know that the reader will look at that and be, wait, a, what? Like Hebrew University is an Antarctica city? Like Hebrew University is supposed to be in Israel. Oh, like what if Hebrew University was somewhere else? Um, and you've, and then you'll quote Rabbi McDaniels. I think that was a name that you used and, um, and talk about the rabbi of Dublin. Like, yeah, it did surprise you that there's a Rabbi McDaniels. Why did it surprise you? Um, and I found that just so beautiful and deep to read your works that they weren't looking to make us feel warm and fuzzy about, oh, here's a reference to the the homey brisket that I associate with Judaism that everybody, not everybody, that that many people associate with Judaism. It was specifically like, oh, this thing you've never thought could be Jewish now is, and it's only 80 years from now. So I wanted to name that, and I just wanted to ask you both broadly, as a as a general question, why you go that sort of provocative surprise route, um, and and what we can gain as as a people and as individual people from the variety, from the surprises, and not just the familiar. And also, if you have other particular examples that you're particularly proud of, that you really threw a surprise into one of your books, um, I'd love to hear those too. One of the things that we're confronting is something that my friend, mentor, and colleague, Aaron Han Tapper, approaches in his book, Judaisms, which is the Ashkenazi dominant narrative. And this in this country is largely what we're familiar with, that we do certain things in an Ashkenazi way that isn't entirely Jewish. So some of it for me is knowing that my lineage are Turkish Sephardi Jews. Or, you know, when I, before my bar mitzvah, I sat down with my grandfather and I said, who are we? Where do we come from? When I get called up to the Torah, what are the names that I'm going to be called? Who is your father, his father, his father, his father? This was 1964, so I didn't say who was your mother, his mother, her mother, her mother which I regret, but what my grandfather told me was our last name in Yiddish means that we come from Rome, generically Italy. It's Reimer, Reimer, and we're actually, he said, my grandfather or great-grandfather was an Italian Jew, and our ancestors lived in Italy all the way back to the time of the Second Temple. No one told me that in Hebrew school. 
No one told me that in the world of people eating brisket and matzo ball soup. No one told me that when I lived in Jerusalem and I had friends who were from Morocco or Yemen or from Turkey. So some of what's percolating in my brain is, who are we as Jews? If your ancestors came from Kaifeng in China and you're Jewish, how do you fit into the narrative? And when I walk into my synagogue and I look at the kids running around, they are from every race, every ethnicity, every background, and they're being raised as Jews, but not the way that I was. And there's, I think, tw about 20 years between our ages, between you, Lex, and you, Dan, and then me on the other end. So we've seen a lot of transformation. When I was growing up, I only knew one person who had converted to Judaism, who was also my art teacher in junior high, and I had a big crush on him. He was it. He was it. And I've worked as a conversion mentor with people from every background. So I wanted to write a book in which I busted open that question. So I love that. I love that right on down to that crush. But um, beyond just the Ashkenormative piece, like, what do we have to gain from conceptions of Judaism that really are expansive and incorporate people like those in Kaifeng and those in Antarctica and those everywhere else in your book that you shout out to? I didn't know there were Jews in China. I had a pretty solid Jewish education in which that was never mentioned. And then one of my great aunts happened to go on a cruise to Hong Kong and brought me back a little book about the Jews of China. And it came at a point where I was ready to walk away from Jewishness and its narrowness. And I was so healed by the gift of that book that I still have 50 years later, because what it taught me was, if this is possible for Jews, then I am possible in my Jewishness. So the spectrum of Jews is enormous. You and I talked earlier about Karaite Jews who don't use or reference the Talmud, and yet they're deeply Jewish. And there was a part of our journey through time in which it wasn't clear whether the Talmudic Jews or the Karai Jews were going to be the dominant Jewishness in the world. And I like to remind students of mine that the blessing that we say over the candles on Friday night, that seems as if it's very ancient, was actually created by rabbis to sanctify the fact that Karite Jews don't have fire burning in their houses on Shabbat, and that Talmudic rabbinic Jews do, and they wanted to make this be sacred and rewrote the much older Hanukkah lighting blessing for Friday night. Now, every rabbinic Jew in the world lights the candles or doesn't or knows they're not, but saw somebody do it, remember their grandmother, as if that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it wasn't. I'm playing with a Talmud story in which Moses and Rabbi Akiva go to watch Fiddler on the Roof. And that plays with the story in the Talmud about Moses appearing in Rabbi Akiva's classroom. So they're sitting there, and Rabbi Akiva has seen the movie several times. It's his favorite. But Moses has never seen it before. And each of them are very aware that the Jewishness that Moses knew was so different from Akiva's. 
and both of theirs are so different from ours. And at some point they get to the fact, this is a strange story. We don't know anything about these Ashkenazi Jews. But yes, they are children of Israel. And that's some of what I wanted to do in the book is bust open storytelling, bust open our conceptions, bringing to us the vast humanity that sometimes we can forget when we're living in our little Ashkenazi mental ghettos. I'm really interested in understanding more deeply how you think about making those points as a storyteller, you know, of, of and I guess I, I guess the question in a way, maybe there are two questions in terms of style. One is when you retroject your stories back onto biblical characters or Talmudic characters, whether they're coming into the future or the present or they're staying behind uh, where they originally were, but you're retelling these stories on the flip side, uh, uh, it's interesting how fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud, right? You're writing something from the future, uh, that you're projecting it forward to the future so that uh, in a way, it feels like it's something that could be true. We don't know. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, right? Whereas if you would write it in the present, it might it might be dismissed as, um, you know, well, that's not, that's not actually, that's too, that's too out there, you know, but if, but, but to put it in this sort of period in the future seems to make it work in a, in a, in a profound way. So I guess I'm interested in the craft of storytelling in, in terms of how to make a story compelling, but also in the, the why of it, you know, why do this in the form of stories as opposed to, you know, I don't know, just writing essays. Some of it is how my brain was shaped, that I had a mother who was a storyteller and a father who was an artist. So as a little boy, my mom would write me stories that my father would illustrate on great big sheets of paper, bigger than me sometimes. And the stories that I play with in the book go off in very different directions. And so even though I'm looking at the future, I think he would hate what I'm about to say, but Rabbi Albert Einstein taught us that time is relative. So I get to play in time. That's one of the really great delights of a storyteller. So the book is, the fragments are in 80 years from now, but I have one section in which I look at the very troubling verses in Leviticus that are used to condemn all of the people now in this category called queer. And I have a team of archaeologists discover a really, really ancient stone carving that clearly, this is what these archaeologists are clear, is the very most ancient text. So I'm going into the future to write something that's 3,000 years old. And what they discover is that the original text said, and if a man lies with a male as with a woman, the two of them shall be considered holy in their town, and the townspeople shall house them for life and go to them for blessings on the new moon. I love artifacts. My original beginning journey and training was in archaeology. And so I worked in Jerusalem in the museum for a year for an extraordinary Italian Jew, Rudolf Cohen, who taught me how to look at objects and how to put together shattered pots that the pieces were scattered, sometimes literally, in hundreds of shoeboxes. And I began to recognize who the potter was, and I could say, oh, wait, I know this, this thickness of clay. And I saw yesterday in that box up there in the far corner a piece that fits to it. 
So I'm going back in my own life. I'm going back in time because I love the world. I want my children, my grandchildren, their children to have a world. And that's some of my passion in writing this book. Nothing major, just that you love the world and, and want it to continue to be a world. I, I just, you know, I, I love that. Um, but I, um, I want to ask another retrojection question, sort of like what Dan got to, because when I read some of your midrash, some of your stories, I'm flashing to a very different text. I'm flashing to the Zohar. Um, part of that is because I'm taking a class on the Zohar. Um, we had Daniel Matt on the show a little while back, and he's the, the person teaching that class. And what I was thinking about is the author of the Zohar, and Daniel Matt talks about this on the show. I'm really just quoting him. This isn't me talking. Um, the author of the Zohar, Moshe de Leon, is in 13th century Spain, and he does this chutzpahdik thing where he claims that what he's writing comes from over a thousand years before and in an entirely different part of the world. And more than that, that it comes from this guy, Shimon Bar Yochai, who's a very big deal. He then writes his commentary and brings all sorts of beautiful wisdom. I flash to that because in a sense, you're doing a similar thing over and over again. You are with chutzpah, and I mean chutzpah in only the positive sense. You are writing now... And you are mapping your words onto people who lived a millennium ago or more, maybe two millennia ago for the rabbis, maybe three for people from the Bible. And, and we could say, and I'm curious to hear your take on this. This is where the question is. We could say, oh, you're, you're just writing like what Dan said, fan fiction. But what's interesting is when we've spoken with some people, when we talked about Moshe de Leon, when we've, this also brings to mind an author, Yochi Brandis, who writes about characters from the Jewish past. Um, I feel like it's not entirely fiction. Like, there's a sense that what you're doing is real. That, like, even though it might not have happened this way, A, we don't know that the Torah text itself happened that way. We don't know that, that the Talmudic text itself happened that way. So it's not less true on that front, necessarily. And also, like, perhaps this is just an uncovered, this is something that was not ever uncovered. And I think you allude to that actually in some of your materials. So I'd love to hear from you. How do you conceptualize this, what you're doing? Like, is it entirely fiction or is there something going on in your writing that you would call something else? I love the scientists who are exploring parallel realities. The fact that this earth that we see may be one of many the way that time splinters and goes off in different directions, the way you stand at a corner and you think, I'll go left, but in a parallel reality, you went right. And so it occurs to me, listening to what you were saying, that it's entirely possible that the writer of the Zohar wasn't doing anything chutzpahdik at all that actually what he was doing was normative, normal, and exactly what storytellers always do. We look back on it and think, well, how could he do that? You know, he wasn't that person. But that doesn't seem to have been a very enormous controversy in his time, although I think people did question, where did this come from? So I think that a storyteller needs to go backwards and forwards. The value of a story, the value of a film, is the way that it changes you. And if you're sitting in a movie theater watching a flat screen and crying, 
because something happened that somebody is pretending that they've been engaged in, but they aren't, and you know that, but you're still crying. Something's going on that's so potent in the very DNA of who we are as animals. And you talked about that with Amichael Lavi, prophecy, storytelling, artistry, all of it is intertwined. And so I feel like the blessing of my life is that the rabbis, the teachers, the imams, the pastors, the priests, the teachers in many faith traditions that I've studied with loved stories and fed the storyteller in me. Putting what you're talking about in your work in the in this heritage of storytelling, you know, from the the first human all the way till today, um, but also this work on um, Jewish storytelling in particular is in the realm of a certain uh, tradition, a certain cultural tradition. That what's challenging about it is it feels like somehow when Moshe de Leon wrote the Zohar. And retrojected it, and sort of uh, to, to and gave it to the authorship of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It was accepted somehow. It has been accepted as a as a sacred book, and whether that whether and I'm not so focused on the sacred part, but it's been accepted as a part of sort of normative Judaism. Whereas it feels like today, when people write books, whether it's your books or Yochi Brandis's books or or anybody else's even though they may be written sort of in the in the same exact genre as those older books as midrash as retellings of older stories we kind of know that they're fiction in a deep way we we know yeah but like we might cry at a movie but we know it's not we're, we know we're not going to build a civilization around this movie. You know, we kind of have put it in the realm of fiction. And it feels like that is impoverishing our lives in a certain way, that that we, we seem, we're so knowledgeable, we're so sophisticated that we can't kind of, uh, we can't let go of that of that and just kind of say yeah this is our cultural heritage and even if it's a big fiction it's something that we can somehow live within and i and i wonder whether you think that that's right or wrong and i wonder whether it seems to me that what you're doing and this is something that we've been talking about a lot on the podcast and as and trying to sort of give examples and i actually think that you're one of the best examples that we have to date there are artists whose medium of art is paint. There are artists whose medium of art is dance. You know, but there are artists whose medium of art is Judaism itself. And and I feel like what you're doing with this book and with your other books is taking the material of Judaism itself happens to be in this in this case in the form of words and language and stories, but you're really actively reshaping the material of Judaism itself in ways that that I find quite compelling. And I think the fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud includes examples of what a world might look like if more people felt the license to reshape Judaism itself, to be artists with the material of, of Judaism itself. What are our canonical texts as Jews now? How many people read the diary of Anne Frank? How many more people probably read the diary of Anne Frank than read the Torah? Mm-hmm. How many people are shaped by it? Isn't that an utterly 
canonical text in the way that Fiddler on the Roof is a canonical text. And 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, will people look back at those two examples the way we look back at the Zohar? We don't Mm -hmm. know that. When someone sits down to do something, whatever it is, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know who's going to pick it up. The hope, I think, for any artist is that what you do is gifted to the world and is useful. But this world may not survive. So a thousand years from now, uh, archaeologists from the planet Quingy will come and find objects, but they will not know Hebrew or English. They will not have the digital devices. They will find something very different than what we hoped. But while we're here, while there's life, this is so the job of what the two of you are doing. So I hope that all of your listeners on a regular basis scroll through, as I have done, every single podcast. And look at the way that you're opening wide this exquisite, exquisite door. And maybe this is the complimentary door to when you open the doors on the ark and look in. Never thought about this image before, but (laughs) you're opening a door out into some vast other ark. So the invitation to every single person alive, because I think every single person is an artist, is make the connections. If they seem strange, unlikely, bizarre, heretical, make them anyway. Because the two of you and so many thousands of other people are opening wide this opposite door. And if we're going to survive, I think we have to walk through it with you. Can you talk a a little bit about why, in your view, we should not be throwing away the things that no longer work for us, but instead should be trying to reshape them? We don't know that something that doesn't work for us won't be exactly what our grandchildren need. We don't know that something that seems wrong isn't going to be exactly right. I remember the night that my father left home and he took the hi-fi, lots of records in the toolbox with him. And several days later, looking around our house on Long Island, my mother said, we have to rearrange everything. And she took down all the pictures and wanted to rehang them, but we didn't have a hammer anymore. And I was a very little boy, but a somewhat enterprising one. And so I went upstairs, and this I didn't even realize is a connection into a story until this moment that you asked that question. But I went upstairs, and I got one of my mother's black high heels, and we walked around the house, my mom and I, hanging up pictures in new places, and I hung, I hammered nails in the wall with my mother's high heel. Now, that was a resilience practice. That was a survival mechanism. That was utterly changing our environment with completely the wrong object. A hammer is made to hammer in nails, but in this case, if anyone was ever wondering, a spiked high heel does a marvelous job. (laughs) So we don't know why things are going to be important, and we don't know that the screwdriver that we were going to discard doesn't turn out to be utterly the perfect thing for putting together the Jewish and the Buddhist texts in a whole new way that is going to be the document that when the Messiah arrives, she will actually be sitting in a little cafe and reading. 
Man, I need to. Uh, so what I'm hearing, and I don't mean this facetiously, is we need we need more Jewish hoarding, um, but like in a good sense. We we need we need to keep we need we need to think about how we could mobilize those high heels, um, proverbial high heels that would be Jewish rituals that might be in danger of discarding. Um, on that front, this is going to feel like a gear shift, um, but I'm I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. For me, when I think about my high heels, my my rituals that I did not have any experience with, that I did not have any connection to, the items that would proverbially be lying around the house that I had never used. Um, the ritual, the holiday that pops to mind is Shavuot, because I grew up having no relationship to Shavuot, um, having heard the word a couple times maybe in Sunday school, but I, I'm not even sure of that. Like we we didn't we didn't talk about it very much. And um, the idea that I would gain any meaning from it or that as a 28-year-old, it would be my very, very favorite day of the year would would definitely confuse the hell out of like 12-year-old Lex for sure, um, probably 18-year-old Lex too. Um, and so I wanted to bring up as maybe a case study in the high heels um, your Shavuot um, because A, I... I saw that you did some interesting maneuvering with Shavuot in particular in your book, but also because we're in the Omer period as we release this episode. And it's this powerful seven weeks where we get to anticipate, where we get to like have the longest anticipatory period of the Jewish calendar year before a moment. And like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you really own that culminating moment. Um, in one form or another, we don't have to own it the same way that our ancestors did, and certainly our ancestors themselves changed it from the way theirs, their ancestors did. So, talk to me about Shavuot or the Omer and ways that we might find new meaning in it, in the same way that you found a hammer in your high heels. Having grown up in multiple blended families and living in a culture, broader culture, in which stepchildren are always the villains. In some ways, Shavuot seems like the stepchild of the pilgrimage festivals. It's little. It's stinky. Not much really happens. Okay, so some people stay up all night and study. But it's not like the biggies. You know, it's not like Passover. It's not like Sukkot with the rituals and the elaborateness. So as a little boy, growing up Jewish in the background of Christmas celebrations, we didn't have anything quite like that, except for in my boyhood, when the ark was opened on Shavuot, Shavuos, it was filled with flowers. I don't know if people do this anymore. Nowhere I've gone do people do it, but it was filled with flowers. And for me, the little sort of envious Jewish boy who wanted Christmas decorations loved that. So it's always been my favorite holiday. So we come to this holiday, Shavuos, in which tradition tells us is the time when the Torah was given to Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. But we come to it every year anew. And so the teaching for me is we're being given the Torah, if not once a year, always. Is it the same Torah? Is the question that I live with. And a good number of years ago, I began to think, oh, I love this dinky little minor holiday that's actually major, that doesn't have rituals and doesn't go on for a long time. So I am going to celebrate it for one whole week. 
no one else has to. I've tried to convince other people to do that. I did invent one other holiday, the 6th of Av, that has caught on a little bit. No, this hasn't caught on yet. I hope through this book it does. Because what I wanted us to do was look at the ripples in the course of a week of our texts, from Tanakh to Talmud to Midrash to all the Jewish texts from medieval times to end up in contemporary culture on the seventh day and looking at all Jewish texts. So are we reading Philip Roth? Are we reading Anne Frank? What are the texts that become sacred? Was my ripple out story? Let's do this for a week. Why not? We have such great stories. We have such a great history. And what if everything is Torah? I like to quote a lot this line from the Jerusalem Talmud. Whatever a disciple of the wise may propound in the most distant future was already revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. So one topic we haven't talked about with you all that much just yet, um, but I think we should, is is queerness. Um, you've mentioned some of our past guests who are leading queer-identified rabbis, um, B'nai Lappi, Amichai Lalavi, um, some of these really awesome folks. And I wanted to open up, um, I wanted to give you a chance to say sort of the role that queerness plays um, and your own identity plays in the work that you produce. Well, first, I like to say that I use the word queer. It's in the title of one of my books. I don't actually like it. And I don't actually not like it because it was such a horrifying word when I was growing up. I don't like it because it means different than other. And that always references, every time we use it, what is normative and not other. And I don't like that. I don't like it the same way that I wouldn't call myself a non-woman or a (laughs) non-dolphin. I had a big dream about two nights ago, which is interesting for me. And I don't know if you have this. I'm sure lots of people do. Every once in a while, a dream that is radically visually, intensely, emotionally hyper-real that is saying to you, the waking person, pay careful attention to this dream. So I haven't had one of these in years, but I had one about two nights ago and possibly in preparation for sitting with the two of you. And in the dream, I am being given a tour by a woman who I know very well in the dream, but have no idea who it was awake of this enormous facility that she works in, and there's a giant room for rent. Looking out in in trees, wall, floor-to-ceiling, walls of glass, it's utterly gorgeous and not unlike the Jewish Community Library of San Francisco where I used to work, and which is one of the great treasures of the Jewish community in the Bay Area. One empty room, it turns out it's for rent for $4,000. I have no idea how I'm going to pay it, but I am standing there realizing I am going to start a Jewish library and archive in this room, and I'm going to get the $4,000 a month. And I woke up from this incredibly vivid dream, and I could draw you a floor plan of this building, of the room, of the stairs, of the trees. It was sort of San Francisco, but it was also Santa Cruz, and maybe it was Berkeley, but it was a little bit of Jerusalem, and it was definitely Long Island. (laughs) And what I was so aware of is the answer to a question that I've been wondering for many, many years, which is, am I Jewish and gay, or gay and Jewish? And what the dream told me is that for the rest of my life, 
I am Jewish before I am gay. Now, that may not be apparent from the dream to someone hearing it, but to me, that was so clear that some part of me was saying, darling, first you are a Jew, then you are a gay man. But they're woven together. So I wrote a queer Amidah. I worked on it for two and a half years. I love that I wrote it. I use the word I don't like, but it's part of my journey. So for me, this notion of queerness is essential. And 20, 30 years ago, I was taught by one of my teachers that what gay men bring to spirituality is something that he called the silly sacred. That no one else does that in quite the way that fags do. We bring the silly sacred to what for other people has to be very pious and serious. So as we arc towards the close of this conversation, which has been a fantastic one, are, are there any thoughts that we haven't gotten to yet? Any topics, any, anything you'd like to leave our listeners with before we go? Every year we sit down and we talk about the exodus from a place that we left a very long time ago, where our ancestors left, where actually they may never have been. This may entirely be a story that was made up. It doesn't matter. Take the story with us. So I want listeners to think about what are the stories that you want to put down from your insides or maybe throw in your backpack? What are the stories that you want to forget? What are the stories you want to put down the garbage disposal? What are the stories you want to compost? What are the stories that you want to compost so that new things grow up that we cannot imagine in the backyard of your imaginations? Whether you're an artist, a writer, a parent, a dancer, a cook, a basketball player, an auto mechanic. If humanity is going to survive, we're going to need, I think, two things. The wisdom of really ancient people like us and the wisdom of people that we don't really look at who have learned how to survive in the moment, and those people are living on the streets right now. They may be our future prophets. We may go to all these people who have been homeless and say, how did you survive? What is it like to live on the street in a tent? These are not people to just walk by. These may be the saviors of our planet, and they may be in training to be our future prophets. And we may not survive I have an unpublished book, which is called When People Still Lived on the Earth or All of Human History from Beginning to End and What Happened Afterwards that begins and ends in heaven where all the souls who have ever lived on earth are all gathered together to watch a replay of everything we did to ruin this planet. I hope that this and fragments are so false, but we leave that to the future to discover. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Thank you both. I am moved, honored, and delighted. And thanks, of course, also to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close this conversation out in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. 
The last request we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, and we deeply, deeply appreciate it. To do that, you can head to judaismunbound.com donate and make either a monthly recurring donation or a one-time gift. So thanks so much for listening, and with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.